In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and communities. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to I Stand With Her, Powering Parity Through Partnerships, our new episode at the Diaspora Podcast, spreading mateship and dosti in true essence. My name is Akashika Mahula and joining me today are Ms. Sarah Curlew, Australian Consul General Chennai in South India, Deepthi Ravula, CEO for VHUB, a Telangana Government Initiative, and Dr. Sangeeta Aditya, President of of Jeevas. We have a candid chinwag on life, work in COVID, gender pay gap, international affairs, diplomacy, our Australian friendship with India and all about being women leaders in these changing paradigms. Ms. Sarah Curlew is a career diplomat with Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. She has previously served overseas in Beijing, New Delhi and Cairo and in Canberra she's worked on a range of Indo-Pacific focused foreign and economic policy roles within the department including on Australian strategy for Indo-Pacific and geo-economic issues. Today, 18th September, marks the United Nations International Equal Pay Day. Concerted action is required to undo a centuries-old injustice for women by making equal pay for work of equal value a living experience. Throughout history, certain jobs have paid less because a woman delivered them. A migrant worker sews clothes in a factory in Western Thailand. Working more than 12 hours a day, with overtime, they earn less than minimum daily wage, leaving them with barely enough money for rent, food or savings. The stats for women with disability are even lower. Nobody is completely independent. Even nations are not completely independent. The word is interdependent. Among nations and communities also, we are interdependent. We live in an interdependent world. A man depends on women and women depend on a man. Then there is a big divide between the rural and urban women all over the world. Bridging this gap is also the need of today. And our Australian DFAT-led mission in India is acting to make it happen. WeHub, an Indian Telangana government-based initiative facilitating innovators to synergize their startups, enable women entrepreneurs from myriad sectors with funding, skilling and mentoring leading to sustaining the business. There is a bit of Australia in this and let me show you why. The first partnership with Australia for WeHub, Community Slate, sponsored five women-led social enterprises through an incubation program with VHUB. The second partnership, Upsurge, is a pre-incubation program for 240 aspiring women entrepreneurs to test their ideas for market viability. Jeevas is an Indian initiative which is also partnered with the Australia. Jeevas is an Indian initiative, a global platform for women in science promoting and heralding women's effort in bio-info nanocognitive technology 
in education, research and entrepreneurship in medtech sector. There's a bit of Australia in Jeevas as well. Under the partnerships with Australia, Jeevas has been supported for the incubation of a startup called Jananya, which is Jeevas Impact Program. In partnership with Australia's 3.Digital, Jananya and Jeevas are receiving special market insights from a leading Australian advisory firm. Talking about gender pay gap today, currently Australia's national gender pay gap is 14.2%. The national gender pay gap is calculated by the Workplace Gender Equality Agency using data from ABS. In May 2021, women's average weekly ordinary full-time earnings across all industries and occupations was $1,575 compared to men's average weekly ordinary full-time earnings of $1,837. This means that on average, women earn $261.50 less than men. India stands as high as 27%, where men earned a median gross hourly salary of rupees. 289 while women earned 208 per hour. Iceland remains the world's most gender equal country, followed by Finland, Norway, New Zealand, and Sweden. Pakistan featured among the bottom 10 countries in two of the four sub indexes economic participation and opportunity and health and survival, according to the report. Strategies and policies that emphasize Investment in the care sector, equal hiring practices and skill development are the key to find gender pay equality. Let's take a listen to what we discussed all about with Ms. Sarah Curlew, Deepthi Ravala and Dr. Sangeeta Aditya in this episode of I Stand With Her, Powering Parity Through Partnership. Absolutely. And I have to acknowledge that Australia's spirit of mateship, I think that's very, very uh, similar to our Indian culture. But of course, it's got a flavor of its own. And I absolutely I'm so proud of it. So um, I think that factor is definitely connecting us. You know, so there is a piece of that Australia-India friendship, a genuine friendship that's forging this dialogue and conversation together for our women today, two Australians, two Indians. Ms. Curlew, thank you so much for joining us today at the Diaspora podcast. And in the spirit of spinning yarns, I'm really keen to understand how your beautiful journey as a career diplomat serving in Cairo, New Delhi, the Beijing, uh, you know, that's going to be an interesting one. And then becoming Consulate General of uh, Chennai in India has been. Please share that fabulous journey with us today. Well, first of all, let me say thank you very much for having me on your podcast and also for Deep D and Dr. Sangeeta for joining. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, in, in some ways, my career is a very traditional one for a diplomat. I joined our foreign service as part of our graduate trainee intake. I had a 
first posting in Cairo. And then, as you said in your introduction, I went to New Delhi and I had three years in New Delhi between 2008 and 2011. And that was a very formative period for me as an officer. Uh, I had a wonderful portfolio. I covered everything internal in India. Indian politics, Indian human rights. Uh, I ran what we have a small direct aid program for the country and it was a chance to to travel to every corner of India and really get to know it here. Uh, I then went back to Canberra and ran our teams that looked at our economic engagement with India and our political engagement. And then after India, I had a posting in Beijing in the economic team there. And of course, For Australia, there's almost uh, no bilateral relationship as consequential as that with China. Uh, And so it was a very interesting period to be there. On return to Canberra, I spent time in our Indo-Pacific Strategy Division. And that's the division that looks at the big cross-cutting issues that will shape the future of our region and, uh, you know, the big forces at play that impact our prosperity, our security, our values, and how we work with partners like India to achieve the region that we want, uh, one in which countries abide by rules and norms of behaviour uh, where everyone has an equal chance at prosperity. So uh, after that, then I was so pleased to be appointed here as the Consul General for South India, and I cover the five southern states of India as well as the three union territories in this region, working very closely with colleagues at the High Commission in New Delhi, but also my uh, fellow Consuls General in Mumbai and Calcutta, so I've, I've been so privileged and blessed to have such an interesting foreign service career, one that really is framed by the Indo-Pacific, but perhaps uh, something that makes me a little different to uh, predecessors from previous generations, women from previous generations, is that in having that career, also my husband has had a matching career. And for us as a couple, it's been very important that we manage joint careers. And now we have two young children that we are joint parents. So I think that's just one aspect of difference, perhaps to my personal journey than to colleagues in previous years and something that's very important to me and my identity as foreign policy officer, diplomat, uh, working for the modern Australian government. So tell me, how is diplomacy evolving in the COVID era? I mean, the last one and a half year, the world has totally changed. We are in times of isolation, social distancing, and diplomacy is not diplomacy, as someone said the other day, unless you're engaging with people over some fine lunches and dinners and, you know, really having that face-to-face dialogue. So how is diplomacy evolving for you? And of course, it's not always fun and orderly. So what has been an unorderly moment as well? You're right. Uh, the COVID pandemic really upended a lot of the usual ways that we engaged in diplomacy and forced us to rethink the purpose of what we did, not not so much the ways in which we had done it. So diplomacy is very often about the personal connections between people across countries. And when the pandemic first came, we switched very quickly to virtual modes of engagement. The technology was there. And I know you had High Commissioner Barry O'Farrell on a, on a previous podcast episode talking about how his first few months in India were so, so characterized by this, sitting in a room, doing Zoom to meet people. 
as indeed my first months here in Chennai have been. I was here through the second wave in India and that was a time when I was making a lot of introductory calls. But also over time, we've come to understand better the limitations of some virtual engagement. So I think you can meet someone virtually, you can perhaps do some business, but really to build the connections of trust that you need to go a level deeper, you have to meet them in person. So I have, for instance, been lucky enough to meet both Deep D and Dr. Sankita when I have been able to travel. And that has really helped to lay the groundwork for those closer partnerships. And you see now that our ministers are starting to want to travel when they can, to have the chance to meet face-to-face with counterparts, even as in some ways we've become more efficient and able to have more conversations more easily by using virtual means. So it's been a blessing in some ways. And I think those are practices of behavior that will continue, but also that it can't fully replace the face-to-face engagement. You talked about diplomacy is not always fun and orderly. Uh, So very true. I think, in fact, the work of, of diplomacy and foreign policy is almost divided into the orderly and the non-orderly. So we try to advance our bilateral relationships, our multilateral interests in an orderly way. We have uh, regular scheduled engagements. We set a plan in advance for things we'd like to achieve and we work away at it. But of course, the whole world is unpredictable, uh, as COVID showed us, but as natural disasters show us, as falls and changes in government show us. So you cannot, as one country, as Australia, we cannot know what will happen in the rest of the world, but we must be ready to respond. And I think that that's something over the course of my career that the department has become much better at doing. So we now have a standing crisis carter of people who are trained to essentially drop whatever their day-to-day work might be and, and respond if we have a crisis that is threatening the safety of Australians. And probably no better example than the situation we've seen in Afghanistan in, in recent weeks where you're very challenging, very difficult times and Uh, For Australia, we were able to mobilise very quickly a large number of people to assist with evacuations from Afghanistan. And that's a credit to all of my colleagues who worked on that very challenging issue. But now, non-orderly moment, you know, thinking about how do you engage diplomatically? Where do you do that from? What do we do for those who might still be in Afghanistan? Really big questions that don't have easy answers, but that skilled, clever people are working on on finding a solution for. That is one of the reasons, Ms. Curley, why I have so much respect for our diplomats, people in foreign service, because of their total die heart to the nation and also standing in integrity, you know, serve and really. So your work has focused majorly on Indo-Pacific, including on Australia's strategy for the Indo-Pacific and geoeconomic issues. I mean, this is hot in international affairs these days. How does Chennai fit into that, uh, into that picture? You're right. I've done a lot of work on Australia's strategy for the Indo-Pacific, and it really has been a bit of a guiding framework for some aspects of my work and my career. How does Chennai fit? I think we need to actually say, first of all, how does India fit? Because my work here in Chennai is part of the India network of posts. Uh, And what we ask a consulate to do is to support, as all of our overseas posts do, Australia's security, our prosperity, our values, uh, 
but to do that at a level of deeper understanding and connection in the place of our location than could be, say, if we had only uh, the mission in New Delhi, as we did actually when I was as last year in India, we didn't at that point have foreign service officers heading our consulate in, in cities. But my team here, we do what other missions would do. We help Australian citizens. We explore trade and investment opportunities, but we also take a thematic focus on a couple of issues. So because of the dynamism of the technology industry in the South, we do a lot of work around tech, cyber, innovation. And of course, as some of the geostrategic strains have shown us, being at the cutting edge of innovation, having secure technology supply chains, thinking through how we use emerging technologies and critical technologies is important for our security. You know, those things can be a vector of risk as well as a way of protecting ourselves. It's important for our prosperity, productivity gains come through better technology. And it's important for our values. You know, how do we use technology to support the rules and norms that we believe in? So that technology work, I think, is very aligned with the Indo-Pacific strategy. The other really important aspect of what we do is maritime security work here from Chennai. And uh, I tell the joke, you know, standing in in Chennai, I can pretty much look across the Indian Ocean to the west coast of Perth. It's not exactly true, but you can see how from here, there's a direct line of maritime security issues we need to address, working so collaboratively with India, with other partners in the region. And my team does some work on that as now, these are very important issues, Ms. Curlew. I mean, free, independent, Indo-Pacific is the vision of the court. How does the evolving Australia strategy from the COVID times now fit into this? There have been any changes to the Australian strategy share with us about, in, especially in these COVID times, given so much is evolving, particularly in innovation, cyber and maritime I think we can see the COVID pandemic as an accelerator of some trends that were there already. It's pushed countries to look at their supply chains and, and look for maybe some diversification or resilience in those supply chains. The other thing that COVID-19 pushed Australia to do was to look at the contribution our development program was region and we launched what we call a, a partnership for recovery, a way of pivoting our development program to assist our partners, particularly in the Pacific and Southeast Asia but also through South Asia to respond to the uh, to the impacts of the pandemic, you know, the health security, the economic and the stability impacts there. You mentioned the quad in your in your framing question and one thing that the Quad is very keen to show is that it has a productive, active agenda for the region to support the region. And so the Quad countries have come together through for a vaccine partnership, for example. So certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has a little bit accelerated some of the things we were already seeing. It's raised new challenges for us to address. But also during this period, we've seen the comprehensive strategic partnership between Australia and India uh, be launched in June 2020 and really take flight in a lot of new and important areas backed by funding for new grant programs on ocean issues on cyber and critical technology, a huge range of work done by colleagues across the Indian network to deepen all of those connections between Australia and... Over to you, Deepthi. Welcome. So share with us how you decided to leave 15 years of your American exposure in private sector. I mean, people really crave to be in the private sector to now leading Telangana government initiative. Share with us what was your drive and that full journey. Thank you so much uh, for the question. Sarah, it was so inspiring to 
hear you speak about uh, you know being a woman diplomat in this yes i was working in corporate for quite some time but then uh, i'm not sure if you're very familiar but uh, telangana is a very new state in the indian union and it was formed only in 2014 so i myself i'm from uh, the state and when i got the opportunity to be a part of the government you know be a part of you know the growth story of my state so what better opportunity than that uh, to come back home and uh, do some work and that is uh, what i've actually done so when i started i came back to india in 2016 and i started working as a joint director for electronics where i was writing policy being a hardware engineer myself and while that was going on we realized that uh, there is a, a very few women who actually come into the government office but there is a lot of need for more women to be entrepreneurs business women so we thought uh, what should be uh, a platform that uh, um uh, should be existing to support more and more women to like not just think of uh, entrepreneurship as like you know a buzzword but actually like you know be able to uh, convert their idea to a reality and a business and uh, create employment so that is how we have has been conceptualized and uh, that's what i've been doing for the past few years so what was that uh, purposeful leadership you know that the drive that made you think oh no i now i'm going back and i'm going to build many more villages i mean that's what i hear all about uh, you know your initiative you know there's nothing more courageous and satisfying than building another woman who will build multiple villages so share with us what is we have all about and how do you skill up women for entrepreneurship thank you for the question so we have is india's uh, first and only physical incubation space for women entrepreneurs okay so i want you to uh, think a little bit about that because we are the only state government supported physical incubation center for women the reason i insist on this is because uh, there is a lot of conversation around like you know yes more women should be there there should be more support mechanisms but no state has actually converted a thought and become a thought leader by converting a very important thought into action like um, our government of telangana has done so uh, that is one of the first uh, things that has really attracted and also like you know supported a lot of women uh, realizing that you know they thought okay whenever we talk to government they always say yes we'll do something but here is a, a physical space just for us and uh, here we can, they can uh, a lot of women entrepreneurs were very encouraged by what uh, they saw by the creation of we hub number 1 second thing uh, at we hub we are very sector agnostic the reason being that women entrepreneurship already the participation of women in uh, entrepreneurship in many sectors is very minimal and now as we have and an entity we only focus on a few sectors we'll be missing out on a large chunk of the uh, population uh, among the women entrepreneurs who might who we might be missing out so we are very sector agnostic we work with women entrepreneurs across sector scale and stage number 3 most important thing is that at we hub we run very specific programs for urban uh metropolitan uh, women entrepreneurs and very different programs for women from the tier 2 tier 3 parts of the state in uh, of telangana and india so broadly this is what we do so our programs for uh, different demographics of women usually go from um, an idea to a prototype which is called as pre incubation which we are running with the support of the australian uh, uh, consulate in chennai so uh, we run a program for uh, taking women entrepreneurs who are at an idea stage Uh, be able to build a prototype and understand the journey of an entrepreneur that is pre incubation the next thing we do is incubation where we take an idea to a pre series a or some kind of a funded opportunity kind of a stage here we don't do large classroom sessions 
what we do is we create a curriculum for every woman entrepreneur who is selected to be part of the program so we don't create a program and we try to fit them in we create a program which is very curated to that woman entrepreneur right there so that is what we do and then the third thing we do is something known as acceleration where we take women entrepreneurs who are uh, who have some initial funding we ensure that we take them through an acceleration program and uh, create about 10x uh, 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 more customers and also a possible 10x in terms of revenue as well as funding so these are broadly the three programs that we run and uh, for scaling we do not directly work on scaling but we make sure that you know any woman entrepreneur who comes to vhub has access to the entire ecosystem so that is uh, how vhub broadly functions that's brilliant deepthi so what would it mean for let's say a banjaran uh, a tribal woman who may have uh, exquisite skills in uh, weaving the tribal monuments jewelry handicrafts etc what would it mean for a woman like her to come to vhub work and leverage that vhub support what would it look like for people like that so when we have a tribal lady one of the first things we do is we don't expect her to come to vhub we actually go to them one of the unique uh, usps of uh, vhub is that we work with the entrepreneurs where they are the goal is to like let's say if somebody is from a tribal part or a tier 2 tier 3 part of the state uh when they bring when we bring them to hyderabad it is removing them from their ecosystem and adding one more logistical hurdle so what we do is we go to where they are and we create the entire uh, bank support that is needed government support that is needed and also ensure that you know she has a proper safe working space which can actually cater to the customer requirements and create customer uh, orders so for a tribal women example which is one of the programs that we run we make sure that you know the uh, local administration has supported this women in creating her own working space has some uh, people who work under her and also have digital skills so she can communicate with us as well as the customer so that is what it means simple as that bringing services to people in yes. yes bringing services to people rather than uh, uh, bringing people to us all the time because one of the big reasons why women don't step into enterprise creation entrepreneurship or we don't see a lot of enterprise creation from uh, the rural parts of the country is because everything is concentrated in cities and the way we tackle that problem is by going to where they are so yeah that's brilliant so dr aditya it's over to you now please share with us all about your prior experiences and how they led you to be the president of this wonderful institution tell us about all the upcoming exciting projects how is it all going for you in covid pandemic thank you so much akashika and i would like to thank diaspora podcast channel as well and today it's been privileged to be here representing jivas this is the name came from jivas in sanskrit for life and the full form of jivas is global women association in science and entrepreneurship so this is the jivas jivas born at the i say in the heart of antz uh, the andhra pradesh metech zone and this is very interesting fact as well i would like to share with you because i was not in country for the last 10 12 years so i was in i was working with oxford and cambridge and while working there we supported lots of female research entrepreneurships and different sector of working area case of stems the science and technology and after that i directly came back to india for my family and i joined at mtz as a manufacturing partner and then i realized 
in the because this is a sector in medical technology where we really needed what we said the equal gender balance and everything but it was very hard to find the female entrepreneurs in this sector especially in medical device and healthcare technology there may be the physicians doctors lots of researchers but there was no female this sector i would in the leading position and that strike me why not because female are having their excellency while we can see during this pandemic situation how brilliantly they supported the whole nation so why can't they so i started this is i founded this organization with help and support of uh, andhra pradesh medtech zone i would say dr jitendra sharma's name if i do not take his really, really i should give that honor that he supported us so and because we are the whole ecosystem here who supports during the pandemic and it's not only the device manufacturer whole ecosystem i would say to support the nation in case of mc for healthcare and so that's how i thought to bring the female entrepreneurs forward so who can help and support in much better way and the beauty of jeevas also jeevas governing body members all are female and they are hardcore into the the covid manufacturing system or in social service supporting system everyone and that's how i'm lucky and i feel we are privileged to be here and we want to take our goal forward so jeevas is built up to create a sustainable platform for science entrepreneurship mainly we are focusing at medical technology these are the essentials of today dr aditya i mean i think i'll be speaking less on this thing uh, so much we need uh, the jeevas it's 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 really an honor to know about you and all the beautiful work you and jeevas team are doing so it's back to you miss kalu um the reason why we are here today is because of course we the women of the world are in many ways striving driving and trying to build villages towns cities nations at many levels look at you on international level so tell us what does equal pay day to you actually mean and how can the economic case of gender parity be defined in the times we are in so uh, international equal pay day is a way of drawing attention to the uh, gender pay gap between men and women and it's actually celebrated on different days in different countries so in australia we'll celebrate this year on the 31st of august representing the fact that uh, women will work 61 more days past the end of our financial year which is the 30th of june than men to achieve equal pay uh, so we have a national gender pay gap in australia of 14.2% which is slightly up on the year before uh, I, i should clarify too that uh, the gender pay gap does not mean that uh, women and men in exactly the same industry doing exactly the same job have a gender pay gap in fact in australia that's illegal uh, they must have equal pay for equal work it is the difference between average earnings across the workforce and so it picks up the fact that in some sectors where women are the predominant employees like childcare or health that work might be less valued or that women are not as likely to rise to senior and therefore better paid positions and that's before we even allow for things like uh, disability or other other intersectionalities that might further disadvantage women in the workforce 
So the Equal Pay Day is important because it draws attention to all of these factors and prompts us to ask, why is this the case? Why is it that women should, on average, earn less than men? That's clearly unfair. Uh, it clearly doesn't represent the kind of values we would want of our society. You also asked about, uh, you know, gender parity in the times of COVID. So the, the research is pretty clear that COVID had a heavily gendered impact and women and girls were hit harder in many ways, including economic impacts. While there were a small portion of privileged women, and I would I guess, put myself in that category who were able to transition to working from home. In fact, something like 91% of women employed in South Asia are employed in the informal economy. And those jobs were much harder to do under lockdown conditions uh, or, or were lost due to the pandemic. Uh, even for privileged women uh, in countries like Australia, the pandemic revealed how fragile some of the structures were that enabled them to work and participate in the workforce. So childcare, for example, many women, uh, many families, I should say, have a have a stitched together arrangement, including, including some paid childcare, some childcare drawing on family, perhaps the father or the mother works some flexible hours in order to juggle that. And again, the pandemic made all of that so much more difficult. And this is before we even get to kind of issues like increased domestic violence due to the pandemic, um, girls kept out of school, perhaps less likely to be put back into school when schools reopen. So, you know, I, I'm not surprised that the gender pay gap in Australia has increased slightly in this year. Uh, I think across across the globe, we would probably see that in the statistics. And we need to make extra efforts to close that gap uh, as as the impacts of the pandemic over the next few years play out, as women who've left the workforce perhaps find it harder to rejoin. Do you think there's a discrimination and bias in hiring and in pay decisions as well, relevant relevant in the work? We talk about the women parity for the pay. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that can certainly be a factor. It depends a little on the industry, whether it's an industry that has a unionized pay structure or a kind of very clear uh, payment schedule but there is good evidence in the private sector that women and men who have to negotiate their salary uh, women may end up with a lower payment than men that then compounds over the course of their career uh, and then there's a, just a whole range of issues around unconscious bias in recruitment and in promotion that need to be addressed for women to continue to uh, advance through management ranks at the same rate as their male counterparts even when they clearly have the same qualifications and experience and training. So, yes, I do think there are also systemic issues to be addressed around the gender pay gap. Uh, so in Australia, we have something called the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, and that was established uh, as a legislative instrument. Its role is to you know, ensure that the law that was passed, that women, women sh- men and women should be paid for the same for the same work is abided by, but it also asks private companies over a certain size to report on their gender data. Uh, And, you know, there are some mechanisms that ask them to explain why it might be that women and men are not given equal opportunities. And those that are non-compliant with the reporting do face uh, impacts like not being able to bid for government procurement. So Dr. Sangeeta, tell me, how is it it in India, you know, to share with us, what does International Equal Pay Day mean to you as a woman yourself in STEM and the future for women to work in STEM? 
what are the new or the changing paradigm in new India that will perhaps help uh, you know women supporting women instead in STEM particularly for the forums and issues like yours and the jeevas how how is it all going to integrate it together thank you akashika again and it's a very good question and interesting as well so first of all i would say for jeevas how we do it how we encourage and then i'll come to the international day work so jeevas we are encouraging the the female leadership in stems and that's not only at the entrepreneurial level we are encouraging from the childhood from their schooling and education to encourage them to take science as a career we are supporting them to do their hands on training or even their high school degrees they can come for the internships here so they would actually know the market and how the medical devices how this is the future of any country it's not only india for globally how it's moving forward how in first space so we because suddenly if we want to encourage entrepreneurship they needs a basic about it that they know the basic understanding and without that it's quite difficult it's quite confusing and they, so i'll i'll come to the equal pay and something it's i'll give you a small reference like we have to teach our next generation or the present generation as well then men and female are equally important in family in a family can we say them like your father is more important or your mother is more important we cannot create the difference so both are equally important so why this question will arise at the time of getting payment that you will get more payment so we have to nurture our children in such a way so they should the future generation or they are the current generation should automatically understand that this is something we have to be paid equally we have to get the equal benefits we cannot claim something higher low so uh, it's in uh, national pay day it, it's really it's not something good day or something good to celebrate i will say it's something it's giving us the reminder that we have to be fair enough and we everyone should have to be equal because i i in terms of pay scale it, it's simply it's an i would say the issue or something is a topic to discuss about but it shouldn't be and when we are going to any country leadership positions like for presidents or prime minister they pay as per the position not by the gender so there is no gap so why in terms of labor force are common people or in terms of c level c so jobs like they are all should be equally so there shouldn't be any kind because you know even for the jeevas mission vision what we said we shouldn't raise the voice we are not here to do the confession that's how we are everywhere we would like to encourage we would like to create a positive vibe so people should understand what's a fact and what needs to be corrected and how should we get the strength to move forward so that's how we are taking our goals and missions forward and i would respect that if this should not be discussed any more in the future this topic this should be we can say oh we are all equal there is no it's over to you bakha diti share with us you know we are now going to talk all about working with australia because that is what is driving force behind this podcast that this episode and why we are here today so share with us diti how did the australian collaboration start and tell me about your first program uh, where you collaborated with the australian high commission on the community slate and then the second one called the upsurge i understand it was launched by his excellency barry o'farrell the 
Australian collaboration started uh, quite organically. To be honest, I think uh, when WeHub was first conceptualized way back in 2017, we were we still did not have an office. We didn't have a building. We we had nothing. But uh, the CG at the time, Miss Susan Brace was visiting Hyderabad, and she happened to speak to my my honourable minister and my principal secretary, and they had spoken to her about uh, uh, WeHub, which they were building. And I think uh, before even Susan met me, she was kind enough to say that you know Australia believes in uh, uh, something like this, and she actually said that you know whatever uh, is needed, we will try to support them. So Australia and the Australian Jean Chennai, Miss Susan Grace, uh, was our first advocate even uh, before we have turned from an idea into an actual vision and a reality. So I think uh, I don't have to speak more than that. I mean, getting uh, uh, that kind of buy-in from. Uh, from the cg only uh, gave a lot of confidence to me and the entire team that yes we are on the right path and yes we can actually learn from the best so that is how the entire collaboration came about and as part of that uh, uh, conversation and the cg had uh, uh, explained to us about the dap program and uh, that is where we applied and uh, we ran our first program with the australian cg in chennai through a program called as a directed uh, program where we ran a social enterprise accelerator for five women led startups in the social entrepreneurship space so mind you when you talk about social entrepreneurship it is usually about like you know an ngo or it is about pointing to a problem or trying to say that you know uh, providing a case study saying this how a solution should look so with uh, with uh, the support of the australian consulate in chennai we actually curated uh, a program where we won't be talking about the pro- problems we won't be just saying that you know this is a problem and this is how it can be fixed but we made sure that we found women entrepreneurs who were seeing a problem creating a solution and making a viable business out of it thereby creating opportunities for employment and social change all at once so as part of that uh, that is what community slate was all about so we ran uh, the program for five women led startups uh selected from about uh, 68 entries across the across the country and uh, across south south india actually and uh, from there uh, that program was a big hit and i'm happy to share that at least uh, four out of the five startups that were part of the uh, program are doing extremely well and they are scaling beautifully and i think uh, sarah can speak a little bit more about one of the startups that was part of the program called as uh, cap dost and now it is dwara so uh, the program is done really well and uh, for the second round of the dap we were really fortunate to receive it we actually focused on getting more women into entrepreneurship which meant giving them an idea of what entrepreneurship is about and that is what uh, upsurge is it is a program which takes um, aspiring women entrepreneurs takes them through the entire journey of uh, business and enables them to create a prototype and a viable business. and that is a program that we are running with uh, with the australian uh, consul general for the second year in a row and uh, uh, yes it was launched by the honorable uh, uh, high commissioner to india mr barrio farrell and the honorable minister and happy to share that you know uh, we are we are ready to launch the second uh, round of applications for the upsurge program that is our relationship if you ask me what does australia mean to we have it means a lot it was our first champion first advocate and i think the biggest cheerleader that we've had uh, since inception and uh, i personally and we have uh, professionally we we value it a lot it we value it a quite a bit and we are really thankful for all the support that is always given to us and all the advocacy that is done on behalf of vihab by the entire uh, staff at uh, the consulate in chennai so thank you so much
It's really empowering to hear and enthralling as well to hear, you know, this program that is very opportunity-based and enables an outcome-based entrepreneurship for the deserving. Really, really proud of the great work our Australian government is doing in India, uh, Deti. Have you been to Australia? Tell me. Have you been to Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Gold Coast? It can't be no, I have not. Really? No, I have not. No, I have not been to Australia. We were actually discussing this uh, two years ago, then COVID hit. Uh, but I've already started working on my uh, acquired taste for Vegemite, and Andrew's helped help me out with that. <laughs> but other than that, I <laughs> very <laughs> <Jabata>. no. <laughs> but we do have the Capilano uh, honey in India, so that's Dr. Sangeeta. How about you and Jivase? Share with us, how has it all been with the Osbridge partnership, you know, being the first international partnership for Jivas? And uh, how is this helping Jivas grow? Thank you. This is this is a wonderful Osbridge partnership. It's a wonderful endorsement for Jivas. And I would like to mention this was the first international partnerships. And I would like to give the special thanks Sarah as well because they supported us very nicely and they understood our mission and what we are actually looking for. and we also supported our first project through Osbridge partnership and you know the name itself it's a beautiful it's a Osbridge it's creating a bridge or connect continent and that's how it's more important to the medtech and healthcare the cross the border not only the technologically development also the knowledge share and when you're product is manufactured how you can support in the globally how you can get the economic development everything so it, it's a wonderful it has no i have no words to say thanks to their team and everyone is so supportive and they have a very wonderful family team as well and they, so in the our first project what we supported the name is janenna that's a non invasive device for the monitoring the interpartum process and that every woman looking for because while have giving a child birth it's not very easy and it's not very smooth it's quite painful so how we can minimize the pain and this is a completely an ai based technology what we are supporting and we have some other projects as well what we are planning to support in future some are the mental and healthcare and also the female health and hygiene so some part it will not be all the osbridge but osbridge connection made us to put us in a very good network in the australia so people are in continuously in communication with us so we are helping both ways jivas vice versa not only indian manufacturing or medtech device uh, entrepreneurs are getting support from australia also uh, i have selected some of the australian companies who are planning to come to india to scale up their products here in medical and healthcare devices so that's how both the continents are supporting each other and it's a wonderful journey i would say we just started and i think i hope many more to come together and we are also planning amtz and jivas together we will support a exchange program that we discussed with anju in his last visit this week that could be like a some fellowship or exchange program like indian scientists or australian scientists or entrepreneurs in this sector 
can visit each other, as you say, that would be very, so that people will know the culture, the regulatory affairs, because a lot of things are related to this kind of healthcare product when you're bringing to the market, not only the development, the regulatory, the supply chain, the logistics, and lots of communications. And so people will know, get to know each other better way. So I would say this would be a wonderful bridge to cross over and get connected with each other. Dr. Sangeeta, have you been to Australia? Unfortunately, no. Oh, but why? I would, I would love to because <laughs> I was completely in the other side of the world. So we have never been there. But definitely, we would love to visit. And even we are planning to because we are, we are also a manufacturing partner, I would love to say, for COVID-related products, for RT-PCR kits and DNA experts. They do VTMs and they support international, national, everywhere. And we have few more the healthcare products which are coming up where I we found that Australia really needed those products. So in future, maybe we would plan to scale up our products in Australia or something. So definitely we would love to and we are planning to take our business forward to Australia as well. Well, we cannot wait for that, uh, Dr. <laughs> Thank you. Now back to you, Ms. Gurlu. Um, this is this is something I've been really wanting to know. How has it been for you working in India? I mean, why? My, I mean, one is the personal side to it. You know, I would really like to know. Have you tried that beautiful silk Kanjiwaram sari? And has have you had that experience of the great Indian wedding or something like that? And on a professional basis, I really want to know why is it important for the Australian government? to support organizations like Rehab and you. Please share with us. Uh, so to start with your question about how I've found being here in South India, uh, notwithstanding the very difficult period that was the second wave of the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns here, uh, outside of that, we've had a lovely time. We really enjoy being here. We love the food. Uh, last weekend, in fact, my family went for Sunday lunch and we had uh, donuts and Italy and I love South Indian coffee. Uh, my children are slowly starting to eat spicier food and I'm sure they'll go back to Australia with quite a sophisticated palate for that. Uh, and yes, I do have, have um, one silk sari which colleagues in the office here very kindly uh, took me to buy and I wore that when we had a special function to celebrate Madras week uh, here at the Consulate General and I look forward to getting more chances to wear it again and it was a really enjoyable experience getting to go and look through all of those beautiful textiles and learn a little bit more about what the different designs signify. Uh, in terms of why is it important that we support institutions like WeHub or GWAS, uh, I spoke to you a bit earlier in this podcast about a central responsibility of my office is to build our networks in India to get to know clever, talented people and to connect them with counterparts in Australia. And uh, Didi and Dr. Sangeeta are both wonderful representations of that. So by connecting them, we then build out our technology and innovation ecosystem between Australia and India. So Dr. Sangeeta, I know, is working with um, an Australian incubator called 3.digital and Dipti has been kind enough to participate in some programs that we're running through an incubator called We at InQ. And, you know, the more we know each other, the more options we can find to work closely together. 
I should also acknowledge too the very strong leadership in the Australian Foreign Service. So our Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator the Anne-Marie Payne, is also the Minister for Women. And she's clear in her instruction to all of her officials that as part of our work, we need to be making sure we consider the impact on the most vulnerable, including women and girls, and that our programming should consider gender equality, should proactively seek to address, uh, seek to address those issues and and so when we do things like our direct aid program or our public diplomacy programming, we consciously apply a gender lens and think about, are we working with women leading strong institutions? Are we working with institutions that have programs that will create strong women? So it's a really virtuous circle there. It is indeed, uh, Ms. Curlew. And today we, in, in Australia, have a woman foreign minister. We have a woman shadow minister. We have more than 40% heads of missions who are ambassadors, high commissioners, consul generals like yourself representing Australia abroad. And being one of them today, what do you think needs to evolve for the pay parity? I think we can acknowledge the really good progress that has been made. As you say, now uh, some pretty good stats with 40% of Australia's overseas posts headed by women, and that's a pretty significant increase. Uh, you know, just a few years ago, it was, I think, down sort of at like 27%. So that's a, that's a rapid increase, but it came about through conscious effort. And so I think we need to keep thinking about what more can be done, what more should be done, where the systemic issues might be. We need to have those conversations. We need to encourage women to apply for those roles. Uh, we can't, you know, to use a cricketing metaphor, we can't drop the ball. We've got to, we've got to keep going. And in fact, um, uh, my, my home department, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, has re recently refreshed its Women in Leadership strategy to acknowledge the progress made so far, but also to set new goals and um, to, to, to emphasise that this is an agenda that benefits everyone, women, and we want everyone to be able to bring their whole selves to work, to be able to work in a way that allows them to balance uh, responsibilities and needs outside of the office including through provisions for flexible work where appropriate, uh, including through making sure people who have other uh, diversity um, indicators, you know, whether they're from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, perhaps they have a disability, perhaps they're from the LGBTIQ community, also have a chance to uh, express that identity at work and feel safe. Absolutely, Ms. Curlew. And continuing the conversation on your leadership, you know, um, it's 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 nice to know that there's been an evolving change in DFAT's women uh, leadership strategy. What actions do you think Australian government is also taking to advance the gender pay parity uh, through its workplace gender equality agency? And how has this benefited a woman diplomat like you? I think there's a much more active conversation around all of these issues in Australia and that is a really important first step to call out where we see there's a difference and then to think about how we can address that and to make clear the case for why we should address that. So uh, you mentioned the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which is an agency actually with a long history in Australia and it's been through a few different 
formations and become stronger each time, uh, asking corporate Australia to look at these issues. There's a good program called Champions for Change, which asks male CEOs in particular to step forward and think about the benefit for their organisations of increased diversity. Uh, you know, how has all this benefited me? Well, I think I have been so lucky to have very strong female mentors coming through my career, including our former head of the department, uh, Ambassador Frances Adamson, who's now gone to be the governor of one of our states. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with her in Beijing, and she was a real inspiration for me and for so many other women. Uh, the previous High Commissioner here in India, Mr. Peter Varghese, who was the one who established the Women in Leadership Strategy. So I think there's a there's a role for all of us who have the privilege of finding ourselves in leadership positions to focus on what we can do to start in our immediate workplace circles, but also to talk about what we're doing and why. Uh, and, you know, that's something I try to do here in Chennai. So uh, in July, we had a meeting of the India Network. So the Consuls General met with the High Commissioner in Delhi and other staff uh, from the India teams, and we agreed our Women in Leadership strategy. And that has a few sections of action. So there's one set of action that is for all staff, whether they're Australian or Indian working in our teams, uh, that they can make personal commitments to advancing the Women in Leadership agenda. Then there were some specific activities for management, and we also committed to external advocacy and taking the chance to raise these issues, to have these conversations. And, uh, of course, you, even being part of this podcast is a wonderful opportunity to do that. Thanks, Ms. Carlo. No, this is really uh, amazing to hear your thoughts. And, of course, uh, having uh, not having Peter Verghese, AO's name, in any of India-Australia conversations and now in this gender pay parity my god he has really earned that respect um talking further about your leadership uh, miss curlew now that you are there just like peter Burgess and other former and uh, current uh, representatives of dfat in india what footprints and legacy you would like to leave or continue to build in supporting women in leadership in india what is your passionist paradox that you're in right now of India? <laughs> uh, well, first, I have to say that I can't possibly allow myself to be compared uh, directly to anyone as, as um, clever and senior as uh, Peter Varghese. But, I, you know, it is a passion for me, this Women in Leadership agenda. It's something that has uh, benefited and supported me through my career and something that I hope I can help others with as well. Uh, you know, we've been talking about our partnership with, with GWAS and we have, and they are immensely satisfying to see the women who've participated in those programs uh, go forth and do amazing things. So Deepti mentioned Capdost, which was one of the early partners we supported through WeHub, and they've now uh, joined with the Devara Trust uh, and um, Yamuna Srastri, who runs that that element of their organization has such a vision for helping people and she works for financial inclusion to help people understand how they can better access and benefit from financial structures and then when during the, the peak of the COVID pandemic we really wanted to be able to give back in some way to the India community we were able to reach out to Yumuna and say well can we work with you to do that and then we launched this um, this program that they will lead where uh, families will be given financial counselling to try and deal with the 
impacts of their pandemic on their personal finances and to give them a little bit of a financial breather. They'll be provided with some uh, grocery packages so that those bills can be reduced for a few months to give people a chance to get back on top of uh, of their uh, economic situation as a family. And so for me, it's just really a wonderful thing when I can meet someone like Deep D or Dr. Sangeeta and you know, the, the consulate can then start some programming in just a small way often, just a little bit of seed funding, and that's enough for something wonderful to grow uh, that can support and inspire so many more women. Over to you, Deepthi. Let's talk about how India aims to move forward. You're a leader, uh, you know, the, dri- the driving force of changing so many people's life, not just women, because through women, we we have the villages building up, the you know cities, the nations, international relations, all of that stuff. So as India is moving through the transition of a transparent and accountable country uh, with its mechanisms to ensure that there is there are equal opportunities for all, do you think this commitment can stay intact for India? I mean, I know there are gaps. And how is VHUB going to embed this vision? India, as actually the world is moving through this entire transparent and accountable kind of mechanisms. And uh, there is a huge emphasis on women and, uh, you know, having more equality, gender equality, something that India is taking very seriously. I don't know if you're aware, uh, at the central government, there is an entire... um, team which works in Niti Aayog on the SDG alignment, goal alignment. So that is one of the steps that we see that which is very encouraging uh, to that to see that, you know, uh, the entire uh, country is actually focusing on making sure that uh, equality and uh, economic equality become a big part of uh, the new India that we're all going to be seeing. And the second thing is, uh, so many a times, one of the things that we, uh, we do notice is that when it comes to women or anything related to women, it is seen as an empowerment activity. And then there is a lot of emphasis on kind of like making sure that more women participate in certain things, which is actually a great thought. So at WeHub, what we've done is we've taken a step forward and said to ensure that more women become, uh, you know, competent uh, entrepreneurs or become uh, strong players in the business world. The goal should not be to lower the bar just because it is a woman who is running a business, but keep the bar very high, but create the entire support network or the support mechanisms that are needed to make sure that that uh, woman entrepreneur can actually reach that bar and actually scale it on the basis of the strength of a product and the strength of her uh, leadership and vision. So uh, at WeHub, we are primarily working on making sure that you know more and more women can come forward, use the support mechanisms that we have and scale the heights that they truly deserve because uh, of the idea and the leadership that they possess and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, not the fact that, you know, because you are women, you are getting an opportunity, but more in terms of like, because you are a woman, you have this really cool idea and you are actually creating a, a kind of a disruption in the market. You need to be here. So that is uh, by trying to create more equity, so to speak, is what we are trying to do. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, uh, just a few minutes back when we were uh, talking about other things, Dr. Sangeeta had a perspective where she mentioned that, you know, we should uh, do more, act more and, you know, show how it's done to really mm-hmm. uh, ensure. But but I do feel, you know, while I kind of agree with that point of view, um, we can clearly see that there are multiple styles on how these things can be managed. So moving forward, let's talk about Telangana. Now, Telangana, the mindset mindset is full of, you know, uh, vibrant traditions, 
every weekend there's a celebration, the Paradise Biryani, Karachi Bakery, uh, you know, all that stuff, the multiculturalism. Hyderabad itself is a small cosmopolitan city, but the mindset of the patriarchy, do you think that has changed? How is that influencing the work workspaces? And especially, you know, coming from you, who has evolved from an engineer to a woman in leadership, building other women up. How is How do you think that mindset on parity can change or is changing? So, I would, uh, one of the interesting things that uh, when somebody asked me a question like this, one of the things is that uh, Telangana is kind of uh, unique in a manner where a girl child is given a little bit more importance than a boy. So I think uh, in my family, in many families across uh, across the state, uh, there is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, support that girls do receive. Now, I'm not saying it's all rosy, but I think it is slightly better uh, than many other parts of the country. So that way, Telangana is a little bit of a, a safer or a better place for uh, women. That is one thing I'd like to say. The second thing is that uh, coming down to the patriarchy and all these other terms, I only uh, believe in one thing, uh, and that is something we try to uh, work with on all the women, is uh, don't look at uh, trying to answer to everybody, right? So it is not always important that we answer to everybody. We solve everybody's doubts because nothing speaks louder than success. And uh, if you are able to, like, you know, uh, get to work, get down to what you're supposed to be doing where you are and uh, show results. I, even the worst of critics have to become advocates. And uh, it it has a multi-benefit, which is that, you know, you're not uh, trying to answer questions which are kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a manner, uh, things which you can't answer alone. The number two is that uh, in the process of uh, showing, you know, what you're actually trying to, you set out to do, you um, grow professionally and personally yourself. And you kind of also give the answers to people uh, who have questions about why you're there, what are you doing? And, you know, do you really deserve to be there? Nothing speaks louder than success. And uh, we push for making sure that more and more women are successful. And that is the only way to overcome all the challenges. Yeah. Brilliant focus, Deepthi. And how has the life in leadership been for yourself? I mean, we all know of those highs and lows we deal with, you know, share with us, especially to the wide audience of the Diaspora podcast, who would really like to know. Uh, so one of the things is that uh, um, there are immense highs and huge lows. Like being a leader, I think, uh, is one of the things uh, that we need to deal with. So there's no two ways about it. And uh, the but uh, even the you know the deepest of lows, like let's say uh, uh, we do uh, face a lot of challenges every single day uh, due to many reasons, right? Uh, because we there are some some people whose expectations may not have been met by uh, what they are ex- uh, wanting to do. But uh, or you know there are some other uh, workplace challenges. There are some other things. But in spite of all this, the biggest successes are uh, that we actually see and what uh, makes uh, it all work is uh, seeing the uh, number of uh, women who come out of WeHub or women who work with WeHub and say, because of WeHub, we are able to do uh, what we always wanted to do, but we never dreamt that we could do it. So I think that one line or that kind of support that we get from our entrepreneurs or partners such as Sarah and and the Australian consulate and uh, so many of our supporters, I think uh, it makes it all worth it. And uh, coming down to the... uh, uh, the COVID times, COVID times has been crazy. The the lows is that, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, apprehension and fear 
among uh, so many of our uh, entrepreneurs whether they will be able to sustain their business or not and even in my own team we were really skeptical as to how uh, a, uh, a lean team like ours which uh, always literally works together in one room how do we transition virtually so these were all the challenges that we were looking at and uh, uh, happy to share that you know uh, we all transitioned uh, uh, seamlessly to being virtual and happy also to share that uh, no more than 6 to 6% of our entrepreneurs actually dropped off from all of our support mechanisms or entirely out of business but we were able to say sustain about 94% of our uh, entrepreneurs and that is the biggest high uh, i believe that uh, any we could have expected from uh, such a t- tough time that uh, we've been going through and our team and uh, our team has been just a uh, rockstar during this entire time and uh, i can't say that you know covid has been a great hi- um, covid uh, covid is a good thing but in vhub's case it actually made us realize our own resilience our own uh, uh, team strength and also our own commitment towards what we set out to do which is supporting more women entrepreneurs and i'm happy to share that uh, the 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 results that we see are really really amazing so that is the biggest high anybody could get oh that's that's brilliant deepthi now the final one the most important one what is the legacy you would like to create as the leader of vhub ah uh, the legacy i, I mean there are uh, the legacy of vhub uh, that i would like to leave behind after, i mean eventually is that anybody um, we want people to understand that you know we have did not come in and that come back and come in and say that you know we are going to change the world we are going to change the way you look at uh, women entrepreneurship but we actually were able to create a platform where any woman who is irrespective of her education social status or uh, you know economic status can come in and achieve her dream and uh, if that is something that uh, we have can continuously do i think uh, no bigger uh, success or legacy that we can leave behind so that is the dream we have for we have yeah thank you deepthi dr sangeeta what is your legacy the footprints that you would like to create with your leadership for jeevas thank you the good question so i i would say we cannot change the world by ourselves alone so the first thing the jeevas what we are aiming for to create a global platform and to hold the hand each other because it's nothing is possible by working alone so we want to work with other people as well across the globe and we are we already jeevas supported i would say during the pandemic we have some of the operational factories completely led by the female workers from operation head to all the manufacturing laborers everywhere so that's how we are encouraging more female to come forward and think and implement their innovative ideas to reaching what i would say the more healthcare products and because we are already having all the healthcare products so why the jeevas is different because there is in country like india not only in the even some other international countries also sometimes it's very difficult to afford for the common people they cannot go for the treatment so we are aiming for developing like healthcare or medtech products which would be affordable by everyone and we are trying to create an accessibility so people can reach to that 
treatment or you say in terms of diagnostics because already jiva's partners with mtz they we do work together to create lots of mobile labs because it's not only supporting that urban area so we have to reach every corner of india and india is a hugely populated country so because covid time this pandemic time really taught us how to reach the every corner of the country and the same way we are aiming so reach to the every corner of the country and support with the accessible and affordable healthcare and medical system and the products so that's how not only the female population it should be beneficial for all and it would create a good social impact for the nation that's brilliant dr sita i'd really like to know from each of you before we pass tonight what do you do when you're not working when you're not building other people up when you're not uh, you know thinking of your aspiration uh, the leadership footprints that you want to leave sure so i i have a small family here i have my son and my husband so because as you say things like work and family both are equally important we cannot neglect each other so we keep ourselves busy so uh, what i believe when you are having a good family good partners and uh, quite uh, like a energetic child who will keep you busy 24 by 7 so we ought to, we should give time and so my son is so inspired by this medical technology so in every science project or something he says oh i want to be a scientist and i want to do something new to the gen i said how come i was surprised so that's how i feel like uh, we should uh, give equal importance and lots of i would not only with family because we also touch to lots of the ngos where we support where we create the awareness these are not exactly we have been paid for the work but we try to create that positive vibe so that people will be encouraged and they should because that's really sometimes important because in uh, i'd say in country like india people are very literate some of the cases they are academically very well but sometimes they do not have the courage to come forward and do something independently or <laughs> take up some projects yeah <laughs> that that that's a fact so i'm already also connected with lots of uh, ngos across the nation to support mm. and also i'm an ambassador for global mental health awareness so because we all do lots of work throughout the day and how to keep ourselves stress free we cannot say that we are all stress free but we already we go through lots of ups and downs but still how to be happy and how to make other people happy and work in a situation like where we can work comfortably to create a comfort zone for everyone and give so, equal so do you follow a spiritual guru or do baba ramdev exercises or what do you do dr sangeeta for that calm in your life i would i would say the self learning <laughs> and self thing is the best thing i would not follow any the spiritual gurus honestly they are quite good they give good but i do not have that much of i will say time to but when we learn lots of experience through our journey through our life we are seeing our family yes. we are seeing our friends we are seeing everyone around us and what kind of issues they are facing and how we are overcoming where do you find your calm when not working uh look i have to say that when i'm not working i am with my family and i love my children very dearly and i have two small girls and of course my husband but i wouldn't say that probably at home is all that calm it's it's always very busy with a lot going on 
but where I find maybe um, rejuvenation is is one spending kind of time quietly at home, but also on the flip side, experiencing new cultures through travel. So Aww. a big part of what motivated me to be a diplomat was the chance to understand and engage at a deeper level with the countries that I've been lucky enough to serve in. So for me, it's actually always really refreshing to have a chance to travel in India, to meet new people, to see new things and, and just try to understand this amazing country a little bit better. And any spiritual <laughs> indulgences? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like Dr. Sankita, I don't follow any particular guru or spiritual path, uh, but I do think that it's important to people to have some source of center and calm in their lives. So meditating? Uh, <laughs> no, I was <laughs> No, no, no. I think uh, I have my family is my most uh, relaxing thing and also the people who um, put me on my toes. So uh, when I'm not working, I'm spending time with them. And uh, for us, spending time means traveling, cycling, doing anything which is outdoorsy. So uh, that is something we do. And we uh, um, truly enjoy uh, trying different kinds of cuisines and cooking. So uh, a lot of uh, time is spent with family reading. So whatever we do, one rule we follow is that whatever we do, we do together. so that uh, we can actually truly uh, not just uh, enjoy uh, what each of us is trying to learn but also spend a lot of quality time together uh, learning newer things so that is one so that is one of the reasons why i learned skating when i was 30 it was a colossal disaster and i hurt myself really badly but i think i'm reasonably oh, a good uh, uh, yeah really badly i mean like it was very embarrassing my son couldn't stop laughing but uh, i think uh, it all worked out in the end Uh, so yeah i mean cooking eating traveling biking whatever is needed we are just always on our toes and uh, uh spending a lot of time together yeah and travel is a big part of our life as well how lovely well i've had one of the most amazing conversations with each of you and to all three of you thank you so much for your time i've learned so much from each one of you in so many spheres and i wish you all the very success in all that you're doing and i hope we will connect again to follow up on where we are next with all your vision and aspirations enjoy your day and thank you so much for joining the diaspora podcast thank Thanks you for having me